I'll tell you, that never gets old, does it? Seeing the kids no, reading awesome. the Beatitudes. and Welcome, everybody. Welcome, everybody that's here with us this morning, and welcome, everybody that's at home uh, live streaming this, and welcome to those who are currently still in bed but plan on watching this later. Uh, I'm here with Pastor Tamil, uh, and today we are going to do a wrap-up of the, the Jesus Way series, although... To be honest, we're not going to wrap up the, the series itself. We're going to wrap up the series within the series. Right. Yeah, yes. so we're, we're going to keep the theme of the Jesus way. We're going to be working with that for quite a while. Yeah. But we did it in the context of the Beatitudes this time, and we're going to be moving into some keep looking at peacemaking Jesus. Quite a stuff. While. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we asked uh, many of you to, all of you, any of you that wanted to, to send in your questions. Uh, because we're wrapping up this section of the series, we wanted to offer uh, sort of a pastors in the hot seat uh, sort of wrap up so that people could have an opportunity to ask questions. Um, before we get to that, let's do a couple housekeeping things. We've got an AGM coming up. We sure do. Wednesday mm-hmm. night. Yeah. 7 p.m. Yep. So that's Wednesday the 25th or something like that. Somewhere in there. Yep. And uh, (laughs) we're going to be doing it over Zoom. So we will send out a Zoom link if you're on our emailing list. And if you're not, you can go to the upcoming events uh, section of our webpage. And there's a spot where you can sign up and we'll send you the link that way. So Yeah. yeah. So it's it's actually in this COVID season, folks, checking your emails is extremely important. Um, I have a 94-year-old grandfather who successfully emails me and text messages me, so I believe all of us can do it if we have the internet capabilities or the phone to be able to do it. But if you have those things, I believe in you. It can happen. Check your emails. Uh, If not, go on to the website. If that's a huge problem, then call the church and we can try and work something out to make it that you're able to attend uh, this year's AGM. It's going to be a little different. Uh, because it's going to be online, but we legally have to do this. It's kind of weird because we're actually talking about 2019, not 2020. Who remembers 2019? Yeah, we're going to be passing a budget that only has a month left in it. Uh, And so it's uh, odd times. Yes, unprecedented times. (laughs) Yes. We're living in. Yeah, and we've got something else going on too. It's the Christmas season coming up. That's right. So we just this past week have launched what we'll call our Community Christmas Compassion Project. It just came up. There That's we not go. the formal title. Yeah, but, that was amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're really excited, and I know a lot of you are really excited about the, the future that we have in our downtown community with the reality that we're planning on launching a site down there. And so this year, as we prepare, prepare for Christmas, we thought it would be really cool to focus on blessing people within our own local community. And so we're partnering with the Norfolk Pregnancy Center and with Indwell, and we're going to be um, purchasing some gifts to be able to bless the people that they support. And so you can uh, visit, if you go just to evergreenheights.org, right on the main page right now, you can find the link to get involved with that. And it's just a really great opportunity to kind of come together as a church family, even though we've, in, in a lot of ways, people feel kind of disconnected. We can rally together uh, in this opportunity yeah. to extend generosity and to serve our community. So yeah. it's been really exciting even seeing people already start to participate every time another person signs up to, to, to give a box. I'm just, my heart is warmed because just a reminder that our Evergreen family really does care. And so I'm excited to see yeah. how God moves through that. Yeah, yeah. And so we have that going on, on as, a, as a, a 
church and the daycare, if you ever walked into the vestibule here, has a tree with hats and mitts on it. They've been gathering that for the youth center. Uh, And so there's lots going on, but we really wanted to focus on our local community. We really wanted to uh, rally the church around um, Christmas locally this year. So... We, uh, is there any other announcements? Anything I think you, that's you it, housekeeping-wise. All right, yeah, awesome. we're good. So we're going to get into questions then. All right. But before we do that, we're going to kind of uh, uh, not do a recap. We'll save you from that. Um, but we, we do kind of want to answer a question that I believe will answer a couple of the questions that we got uh, from others. What were those, those questions? Well, we had one question came in that said, do we have to do all the Beatitudes at the same time? Mm-hmm. winky face right and so yes. kind of a playful question but it really hit on this reality that I think a lot of kind of picked up from a lot of people that it can be a little overwhelming once we kind of dig in like one beatitude at a time and looking at the way of Jesus that we're being called to there's some people who are like do we is this really like I'm still stuck back on trust how does this play out in our lives yeah so, so the simple answer is yes so let's move on to the yep. next one uh, and uh no I no <laughs> Yeah, and there was another question, too, that was sort of similar to that. Uh, Yeah, when one reads all the characteristics one should have when following the way, it can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. Where does one start? Yeah. Right, and then just the Holy Spirit, of course, is involved in this, but but how does this kind of play in our lives? Yeah. Is the sum of it? So we kind of will indirectly answer those questions within our sort of intro to this, because what we want to... kind of unpack before we get into the other questions is what is God actually doing here in the Beatitudes? He's opening his Sermon on the Mount. For some reason, that's how Matthew has collected this. Uh, and so it's, it, it's introducing a, a section of teaching that Jesus is about to do that we know is the Sermon on the Mount. And so I think within that, we're going to be answering a lot of those questions. And so yeah. over the next 10 minutes, I've got my timer here because we got a lot to cover yeah, today. Yeah, last time we did this, we got cut off. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. we don't want to do that. I'm convinced it was a conspiracy. <laughs> it probably but, was. But uh, yeah. anyway, um, you know, conspiracies are all over the place right now. So here, here is really what we need to figure out. What is he doing here? What is actually happening? And in order to actually understand that, we, we need to dive into chapter 4. Ironically, when you read scripture, you, you can't isolate a single chapter. You, you can't isolate a single book. You have to look at scripture as an overarching narrative. God is inviting us into his story. That's what the Bible is about. It's the story of God, and he's inviting us into that narrative, into that story. And it's beautiful because he's inviting us in as his children. Okay? And so John... Uh, the Gospel of John, he opens up, uh, you hear a lot of conversation about the Word, yeah. right? The Word is my rock. The Word is my foundation. The Word, the Word, the Word. The evangelicals love the concept of the Word. But here is the biblical concept of that. The Word became flesh yes. and dwelt among us. So the Word is Jesus. And Jesus calls us to follow. So, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, who is the Word, okay? And so, this itself is the overarching narrative about Jesus, yeah. about God. So, that's a basic Christian belief. It doesn't matter what, uh, what bend of Christianity you come from. That's just Christianity 101. 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that is Jesus, and Jesus calls us to follow him, which means we're following the word when we're following Jesus. Mm -hmm. In chapter four, uh, Matthew does a couple things that are super interesting, and I got to fly through this. He gives us sort of like a summary of everything, literally a gospel summary. In chapter four, verse 17, he says, from then on, Jesus began to preach. This is what he preached. Repent, because what? I think it says the kingdom is the near, kingdom. Yeah, repent. Yeah, I, I threw <laughs> this at her. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't say repent because you're an idiot, mm-hmm. although he could, right? He, doesn't, he says repent. Why? Here's the good news. The good news is that the kingdom is near. This kingdom concept and Jesus being the king is central to us understanding the word. Okay, so Matthew states that in chapter four as he's leading into a teaching of the Beatitudes. And then we get this story of the calling of the first disciples. It's interesting how he clumps this together. So he says, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then it says that he was walking along the Sea of Galilee. This is verse 18. He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter. Peter's one of my favorite. He's awesome awesome. uh, because he's a... He's interesting. And his brother, Andrew, they were casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen, for they were fishermen. What's Jesus say? Come, follow me. That's right. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And then notice how Matthew narrates this immediately. Not like eventually... Once I get around to it, after I go through a process of repentance, after I pray a prayer, which we're going to address in a minute, uh, like he doesn't say any of that. It says, immediately they left. This is key. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. That's the calling we have. Now, if you jump down to verse 21, it says, going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They're in the boat with dad. They're working in the family business. Jesus walks along. What does he say? Verse 19, follow me, he told them, and I will make you, uh, yeah, fishers of men. So then it says in verse 22, immediately, there's that word again, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, Matthew's going to line us up. So he's done this on purpose. Now Matthew is going to say, then the news, verse 24, about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted. A question that we have to ask when we're reading and interpreting scripture is, who are they talking to? Who is Jesus talking to in the Sermon on the Mount? Who is the book of James addressing? Who is First and Second Timothy? Who is Paul addressing in those books? Who are they talking to? Who is the audience? What's the context here? Well, in this, Matthew sets it out. Those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, epileptic and paralytics, and he healed them. So we see this change. And then it says, large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So Jesus calls us, the word in flesh calls us to follow him. 
and the people that he is about to address. Because then in chapter 5 it said, when he saw the crowds, the people he's about to address are the afflicted. The ones who actually in religious society at the time were marginalized. The one who were pushed to the side. Now we have to understand this for the Sermon on the Mount. And I really got to get going uh, uh, through this. Then he goes into these blessings. Blessings of the poor in spirit. The Beatitudes, folks, are not a to-do list. Right. Right? They're they're not a to-do list at all. Mm -hmm. So what exactly then are they? Well, I mean, when Jesus starts this teaching, like this is, there's all of this, uh, it's like, it's this really intense section of scripture. Like Jesus is initiating something new, right? And so when he, he goes and he starts, he does all this healing and people are sensing that God is doing something new in their midst. And then he starts this teaching and really throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching people what life is like in the kingdom of God. And so the Beatitudes are kind of the teaching that he, he starts with to, ori- to reorient the way people think. And yeah. we've got to remember that in this context, people would have had a really structured idea of what it meant to be successful, of what it meant to uh, have a good life, especially within the religious world, yep. right? And even this, uh, this format that Jesus is using, this would have been a common thing that teachers would have done at this time is talk about what, what does it mean to be blessed? So the Beatitudes isn't unique in structure, but it's unique in what Jesus says it means to live a blessed life. That's so right. So he's really yeah. turning upside down yeah. what people thought it meant to be yeah. successful. And he's in some ways kicking open the doors to the kingdom of God. Yeah. Right? People who were yeah. always on the outside are now suddenly blessed. Yeah. They're blessed, right? It's not yeah. just that they're tolerated. Yeah. It's like Jesus is saying there's blessing in this. And, and yeah. so it's this reorientation. Yeah, the Beatitudes are essentially saying, listen, according to the word, mm-hmm. Jesus, those who are living the good life are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the humble, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are actually the ones that are living the good life, not the religious proper, not the ones that, that they have propped up. Matthew does this this way on purpose. It's written this way for a reason. He lines it up with chapter four. Here's the audience Jesus is going to talk to. And he says, the kingdom of God is for you. Mm-hmm. It's not just for them. It's for you. As a matter of fact, you're the first ones mm-hmm. that I'm going to share this kingdom with. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what is happening in the Beatitudes. He's identifying a picture of who is living the good life, the kingdom life. And we see this kingdom theme throughout all the Gospels. You can't avoid Jesus the King and the ushering in of the kingdom. You, you can't avoid that concept at all. Essentially, he's reorienting how we think about and see the world around us. Mm-hmm. Right? He, he's, he's realigning our priorities to say, this is how you thought. Yeah. This is how it actually is. And he right. does that as yeah. we move into the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. So you can imagine that if you were standing in the crowd, right, there's a whole crowd listening, and you're somebody who's always been on the outside, and you've just never measured up, you've never fit in, you've always kind of been the bottom rung of society, suddenly there's like this glimmer of hope for you, right? It's like what Jesus is saying, like, it means you're in, you're in. And if you're standing in the crowd, and you're actually somebody who's at the top, right, who's got it all together, you're kind of put in a position of tension where either you have to consider that maybe... There's a new posture that you're being called to. Yeah. Or you might alternatively want to 
kill this man, right? Because he's yeah. challenging uh, what what gave you your sense of worth and value in the society. And so he's just it's it's this whole massive reorientation. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So this realignment of priorities, we see it if you then go into the teachings where he talks about salt and light, he talks about how he's come to fulfill the law, and then he begins this, you know, um, do not murder. You've heard like, do not murder, actually don't even get angry, mm. right? Mm. And, and in, our, in our, especially our North American culture, we really don't like this. So we, we take, often take this as figurative, like Jesus is just upping the ante. He's not actually upping the ante at all. He's reorienting the way we think, and he's digging into the source of where murder comes from or where adultery comes from, right? So you think adultery is this, but actually looking lustfully at another person is adultery. Mm -hmm. And so it's not an upping the ante. It's actually saying you're secretly lusting, and that is actually the problem that leads you to adultery. Mm -hmm. And so this is what Jesus does. These are the blessed people. So we don't live, we do live every one of these beatitudes with the, the kingdom vision, but we're not trying to like, oh, that's right, I need to be poor in spirit. Like who tries to be poor in spirit? That's just weird, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, I need to be more poor in spirit today. I need to, I need to mourn more today. You know, I need to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness more today. Well, yeah, all of those things, but that's actually the picture Mm-hmm. of what this realigned heart looks like mm-hmm. in the kingdom. Yep. And as we grow closer to God, as we follow Jesus, and our, our self gets displaced from the center of our priority list, mm-hmm. we'll grow in, this is the direction that we'll grow in, right? Yeah. And so it's less a to-do list. Everything is covered in grace, right? Um, one, of the thing, one of the very things that Jesus is addressing in this section and in the entire Sermon on the Mount, as, as you were talking about the, the whole angry and yep. killing part, mm-hmm. um, is our ten, like, we have this tendency, as they did in uh, the religious system of Jesus' time, to want to structure and systematize everything. Right. Well, where are the loopholes? How far can I step outside the line? Who's in? Who's out? What's the system here that I need to follow? And essentially what Jesus is doing is he's dismantling it and he's saying it's not a system. It's a person. It's me. Um, Follow me. And this is what what it's going to look like. It's really upside down to the way that the world lives. And it's really interesting to me as somebody who didn't grow up in the church, um, but but fervently began to study scripture uh, when I actually was like, wow, this Jesus guy is real. And so I wanted to learn more about Jesus. And, uh, and as I started to study scripture, I started to notice more and more just how much we as Christians try to make it systematic, just like the Jews did, even though Jesus is making it relational. Mm-hmm. But he's making it communal in nature, in the relationship. Yeah. And so that actually leads us to one of the questions Uh, that we have gotten earlier on in this series. And it's actually a question based off of a passing comment that I made that wasn't actually in my sermon notes. I sometimes do that. These Mm -hmm. weird passing statements that come back to haunt me. No, no. You don't do that. And so now I need to explain. Sinner's prayer? Are we going into the sinner's prayer? Okay. So if the sinner's prayer isn't a biblical way of leading someone to Jesus, how do we go about doing that? Yeah. So really what I'm saying there about the sinner's prayer, in essence, there's nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. It it isn't in the Bible. You don't ever see Jesus. Jesus says, follow me 
and immediately they followed. So you don't see this structure of a sinner's prayer and walking people through a prayer and that prayer equals their salvation. You don't see that in scripture. So that right away makes me curious because that is actually all I've ever known in Christianity because when I came to faith, it was through charismatic circles and in the charismatic circles, that is very much how they articulate how you come to faith. Now, so in, in essence, there's nothing wrong with it, except that I think that it's been detrimental to the Christian faith because we make it that if I prayed this prayer, now I'm going to heaven. And going to heaven isn't the primary focus of Scripture, the Word, at all. And so right away, we've reoriented ourselves to focus on something that the Bible itself doesn't actually focus on. And then we've neglected to actually create pathways of discipleship And what the Bible actually says is a follower of Jesus is a disciple. Mm -hmm. So someone who's actually following him is the one who's a disciple, not the one who prayed a prayer. So the prayer was developed because we needed a systematic way to figure out how how do we get people saved. Mm -hmm. My reaction to that is, is we don't. Mm -hmm. We actually don't because we don't do the saving. What the Bible says is, is that we share the good news And the good news, according to Matthew and according to Jesus, is because the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the good news. God has come in the flesh. The word has come and and is dwelling among us, living life just like we do. And he came to conquer evil, to conquer death, to conquer sin. And he did all of that on the cross. That's the good news. And so you can pray, you know, a prayer. We, we used to do this in the church all the time. All eyes closed, every head bowed. And then the pastor would be like, I see that hand, right? And, and, and that's fine. That's fine. But then what are we doing with that hand? Because what we just told this person is that they prayed that prayer and that became their salvation, which in essence is fine, except that we're to make disciples, not people who pray a prayer. And so that was my, my point behind all of that, is that I think that our system is flawed because it doesn't follow through with creating disciples. Mm-hmm. It actually just says, oh, six people were saved today, or I led so-and-so. I've had people call me and say, um, like, so-and-so's saying they're saved, but I asked them if they said the sinner's prayer, and they looked at me funny. Are they saved? Yeah. And, and right away, I'm, I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, what do you mean you don't know? You're pla- I, I don't decide who's saved. God decides who's saved. What I can do is I can live my life for God and I can share the good news with everyone and allow the Holy Spirit to work in them. And when you see a transformation begin to happen, I can mentor and disciple a person through a relationship mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. What we see in scripture is that discipleship is highly relational. In the gospels, crowds aren't actually a great thing. Often uh, when when the gospel writers talk about crowds, there's kind of this sense of um, 
lack of commitment, right? So there's crowds and then there's people who follow. And so Jesus was never trying to get converts. He spoke the truth and he called people to follow him. And then there was kind of this ongoing thing where he was doing life with people, right? And so I think that the sinner's prayer, and I don't have, I have, I couldn't even tell you what it is. Um, I'm sure it has great things in it that are true. It's different. Right? It depends yeah. who says it, but it, it holds certain. <laughs> yeah, like repentance. So like, so repentance is a piece of it. Is repentance yeah. important? Absolutely. Yes. Right. Yeah. But there's this this reality that I think people in the real world are hungry, hungering for more relational connection. And if we're going to share faith with them, they want to know we're actually invested in their lives. So I think it involves a lot more listening. Yeah. Uh, to their story, to their experience of God, to their questions, a lot more yeah. sharing of our own personal experiences. So there's a level of vulnerability and authenticity as we follow Jesus. Yeah. And uh, there's just thinking about how we point people towards Christ. I mean, we could say so much about this and we've talked about the possibility of doing kind of a, a podcast or like an after party yeah. talk about it. Yeah, because we, we um, got to move on. Yeah. Can I say one thing? <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. one of my favorite books <laughs> is is Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller. It was mm. just, when I was kind of new to faith, it was really formative for me. It kind of gave me a sense that actually Christianity was something that actually I could fit with, whereas before it never really felt like it could. And he starts with an author's note, and he says, I never liked jazz music because it never seemed to have a resolution. But one day he was outside of a theater, and he saw somebody playing a saxophone. And this person didn't open their eyes for 15 minutes. They were so into the music. And after that, he loved jazz music. And he says, sometimes you have to see somebody love something before you can love it yourself. Mm. And so I think that the best way we share our faith is by genuinely falling in love with Jesus and just living. Mm -hmm. And that people see that and it can open up some great conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And in the midst of that relationship, we then say, you know, and this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus has done. So we also use a phrase, uh, a personal relationship, which is perfectly fine. Um, the, the only nuance to that, and everybody says I'm splitting hairs, but as a pastor, I've seen this time and time again, that what a lot of people, it's, it's not about how we hear it in the Christian world. We have this Christian language that people who don't know Christ do not understand. Mm-hmm. And I know this because I was that person. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't understand what we're saying. And so when we talk about personal relationship, they pray a prayer, and then they are like, I have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. So now that means my sin is between me and Jesus. But actually, the Bible says, no, that's not true. So yes, you enter into a personal relationship or an intimate relationship with Jesus, and you're shaped and formed through that relationship. Absolutely. But it has to be communal as well. And so what has happened in the Christian church is, because of this sinner's prayer and this personal relationship language, which is all fine, except it it isn't fine when they don't understand what we mean by it. We're actually rebelling against uh, high church. It only started about 100 years ago Mm -hmm. where we started to use that language. Um, The tent meetings and things like that sort of started that. And uh, we've lost the communal nature of the body of Christ, Mm. where our sin is actually to be confessed Mm-hmm. in the community mm-hmm. and we've lost aspects of confession and all these spiritual practices that the church practiced for thousands of years mm-hmm. until a hundred years ago mm-hmm. and a specific strain of church stopped doing that in rebellion against the dryness of high church so I get it I understand why um, so that's really the essence of what we're saying there so you do enter into a personal relationship with Jesus that's fine but the personal relationship is expressed in community 
uh, as well as personally. Mm. And so we can't omit community uh, as well. So it's not the prayer that saves you. Mm-hmm. It's believing. And you, you need to get involved in a community. That's what you see right away in Scripture. So that leads us to the next question because we took 12 minutes answering that one. Okay. And we were scheduled for three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, if you have forgiven a family member, talk to them, offered forgiveness, and asked for forgiveness in kind, but they refuse, do we continue to try and journey down the heart-hurting path, continue to turn the other cheek, and continue to pray for them? Or are we only expected to control how we react and leave it in God's hands? So really, ultimately, what do you do when you've extended forgiveness and it's not reciprocated? Um, how do we navigate that? Yeah, um, so working in the addiction field, um, a common thing is making amends. And one of the things that I would always tell my clients is when you are making an amends, don't expect it in return because you'll often be disappointed. So I actually think, and this is really just, I, I think I'm building it off of biblical whatever. This is my opinion. <laughs> I think that forgiveness does not, I'm not sure that when you forgive and you expect forgiveness in return, it's actually true forgiveness. I think that when we forgive, we forgive, and we don't expect anything in return, and then we place it in God's hands, and then and pray, and we act as a peacemaker, um, and we function that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a verse that comes to mind, and it's in Romans 12, and it says, 12 verse 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends mm-hmm. on you, yes. right, which kind of lines up with what you're saying yeah. there, live at peace with everyone. Yeah. I can't control other people. Trust right. me, I try. <laughs> and uh, it never works, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, like, who's married? You ever try to control your spouse? How well's that go, right? I mean, that's not our, our role. We can only control ourselves, and so I think that's... Forgiveness is we forgive mm-hmm. without any expectations in return, mm-hmm. but we give it to God. Yeah. Anything that we're able to do. Yeah. And of course, uh, there's pain like in this question, right? And there, actually, Jesus opens a door for, for the reality that in, in the Beatitudes, he calls us to lament, right? Mm-hmm. We lament that things aren't as God wants them. And so our heart is for reconciliation. And if we've extended forgiveness, we still pray for, for the person, right? We still hope that they'll come back. And every situation is different. We're actually probably, possibly, maybe, I think, going into a peacemaking series at some point. We are. Yeah, okay, we are. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we'll talk more about this because it it's an important question, but, but we can only control ourselves, right? And so I think the reality is maintaining that posture of love, a posture of openness to reconciliation, and then just doing what we can as far as it yeah. depends on us to yeah. live at peace. Yeah. Yeah. All right, next question. Okay. Can you clarify practically how we focus on loving everyone in the context uh, within the church applying chapters such as 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 to correct, rebuke, and encourage one another and passages like 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 11 to 13 saying not to associate with those who claim to be a brother or sister in the church but are sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler those swindlers, good, good eh? without, <laughs> without appearing as though or seeming like we don't love them. Thanks. Wow. Okay. So um, my first statement before we get into the actual passages 
is being loving doesn't mean we don't correct someone in a loving way. Mm-hmm. It's actually about posture, mm-hmm. right? And so if we approach it in the Jesus way, um, which is fruits of the spirit, you know, I use the, the uh, in one of our teachings, I use the concept of ear. Mm-hmm. Whenever we communicate, always communicate with empathy, assertiveness, and respect. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to, uh, if you feel you're in a relationship with a person where you can, can correct them, that's a key. Like it's got to be relational based. Like you, you ever tried to correct somebody that barely knows you? Mm-hmm. Goes well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and trust me, go online. Um, <laughs> So, so, so it's relational based, but it doesn't mean you're not being loving. It's about how. So you can correct in a very loving way. Now, that being said, so it's about posture. That being said, though, I'd like to point out a couple things about those passages. And it has to do with how we go about reading the Bible. And you know how I talk about plucking? Yeah. These two passages are deep victims of plucking. Because we have to ask a few questions. So 1 Timothy, uh, let's dig into that. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. First of all, uh, who is Timothy? Because that's who Paul's writing to. So who is Timothy? What is his role? And why would Paul be writing this letter to Timothy? Because what we're reading here, folks, is an is a, a intimate letter that has been written by a mentor to, so from one pastor to another pastor, the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy, okay? So that's important to remember the context of what's happening here. So when we read scripture, there are universal principles. So there are verses in the Bible that are are universal in nature. They apply to all of us. It doesn't matter the culture. It doesn't matter the context. That is just a universal biblical principle. And then there are things that are actually role-related, Because if we jump over to Ephesians, the Apostle Paul actually talks about the gifts that have been given to the church, which is the different offices. And pastor and teacher is, pastor and teacher is the same Greek word. I'm not sure why we separate it in the English language. Pastor slash teacher, it's one and the same. Uh, We have deeply lost this concept in the North American church culture. The offices don't really matter. They don't hold any kind of authority anymore or anything. Let's imagine that Ephesians matters. So let's imagine that Paul meant what he said in the book of Ephesians, that you have been given a gift. And in the book of James, it says that your pastors and teachers are judged more strictly than everybody else. Okay, there's a reason for that, and the reason for that is actually exemplified in 2 Timothy, because Paul is writing to a young pastor, and he's teaching him how to navigate difficult things. So if we look above at chapter 3 in 2 Timothy, he says, but know this, hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people, Timothy. Okay? 
he's setting us up here. Now, if we jump down to our passage that is reflected in this question, Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, listen to what it says. Thinking in the context, why is Paul writing this and who is Paul writing this to? And is this a universal principle or is Paul talking to Pastor Timothy? Is this office oriented? Verse 2, preach the word. So he's talking in the context of preaching. Okay? Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. The context of this passage is that he's talking to a young pastor and he's saying, in these difficult times, you need to preach the word. And when you preach the word, you need to rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. So this actually is written to the office of a pastor. We're making a mistake pulling it out of that and saying all people in the church should rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. We can, but I think the reason that Paul puts it into this context is because of the accountability that the teacher has over other Christians. Uh, you are judged more strictly. He literally says, you don't want to be a teacher, Right? So the words that are coming out of my mouth, I will be judged for stricter than someone else. Mm -hmm. We've lost this in our culture. A pastor to rebuke, correct, and encourage gets a nasty email. Now, I'm going to put a caveat to that, and then we'll move into the Corinthian passage. The caveat to that is is that uh, there are many pastors who are pastors for all the wrong reasons and therefore have given us reason to not place trust in that office. And uh, I think it's because we don't take calling and we're not willing to put in the work that's needed. We've made it um, a lot of things that it was never meant to be. And I'm very fearful for those pastors because one day they will stand before God. Here's the way I I do it. If you want to know to trust your teacher... Look for humility. Hmm. Yeah. If a pastor loves to be called pastor, we got a problem. Hmm. We got a problem. Um, because often in the Christian culture, you know, if you want to be known by everybody and you want to be noticed and you want, if you're that kind of person, well, you might as well become the pastor, right? Hmm. Uh, until they find out what pastoring's really like and then they want to quit or they they get fired or whatever. Um, so I get it. Like yeah. I get why we've lost that. Yeah. But in the context of this passage, he's talking to a pastor about how he should preach mm-hmm. and the posture that he uses within that preaching. Mm-hmm. Now again, we can rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching amongst ourselves too, mm-hmm. but do it with ear, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, none of those things are antithetical to love, right? Correcting That's people right. can be done in love, rebuking, encouraging, uh, posture, posture matters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I could talk for hours about that, but I won't. Let's jump over to the Corinthian passage because it reflects a little bit uh, also. Um, so one of the things that we've, again, we struggle with this passage because in our North American culture, we do not implement church discipline at all. It barely exists, 
And often when we do, like, like back in this day when you were removed from your community, it was the most detrimental thing that could ever happen to you. Nowadays, the average person, I think the statistic is that the average person has attended four to five different churches uh, within 20 years of their, of their initial faith, whatever. Interesting, eh? Yeah, so so when, when a church context. goes to discipline, we've done that poorly. Mm. So again, I recognize all of that. But when a church goes to discipline, um, the disciplined person is not transformed into a repentive nature, which is what he talks about in this passage. Instead, they just get angry and hurt. The church is going to hurt you. The church has hurt me numerous times, like weekly. Um, but, but the church is going to hurt you, but I'll explain why. Human beings are in the church. Pastors are going to make mistakes, and they may hurt you. Do you know why? They're human beings. Now, they are held to a, a higher accountability, which is a little scary for them, but uh, they're human beings. And so in human nature, we will do hurtful things, and hopefully, if we're living in the kingdom, we will recognize those things, be convicted of those things, and repent, and, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, yeah, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, I can get into the passage, but yeah, we're running no, out of time. Uh, yeah, I know, I know we're short on time, but this is a really interesting passage. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let's dig into the 1 Corinthians 5, verses 11 to 13. Yeah. So essentially, there's a man that's sleeping with his father's wife, always mm-hmm. a healthy, great thing. Uh, to do now it's not his mother let's clarify that first it's not incest it's not his mother um, he's sleeping with his father's wife uh, but that but it isn't his mother Paul is really bothered by this mm-hmm. and this is important to notice in this passage like Paul is is in this in the Greek text he is like fuming like he is really upset with this but the reason he's upset with this is because the church is actually boasting about it The church is actually, like he says, so a man sleeping with his father's wife, verse two, and you are arrogant, Mm -hmm. right? So what he's actually saying to the Corinthian church is, and you're doing nothing about this. You're just letting it happen. Now, I would say in our North American churches today, um, we, we just ignore sin. We just ignore things because church discipline is so difficult because we've, we've said to leadership, we don't need to listen to you. Because leadership is, I get it, right? Uh, But it's caused a major problem when we look at a text like this because this is Paul calling the church to discipline something that is reflecting negative on the church Mm -hmm. and causing issues within the body. And so leadership's role, the offices that that Paul talks about in Ephesians, leadership, the leadership roles, the elders, the pastors, the teachers, the the apostles, all of that, their role is to actually discipline this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're, not, they're not doing it. Yeah. So we're not dealing with a situation where someone has fallen into sin. We're not dealing with a situa- situation where somebody's wrestling with sin or struggling or where someone's fallen short, uh, where they're trying to sift through whether something is right or wrong or whether they're making the right right decisions. We're dealing with a situation where something is overtly wrong 
in this culture even. So what Paul says is even the pagans wouldn't do that. He's talking about a very real context issue where there was a lot that was tolerated yeah, in Roman in culture. Corinth, yeah, right? there was a like, lot that was tolerated, yeah. but even even the pagan culture wouldn't have accepted this behavior. And yet the church is not just accepting it or tolerating it, but they're actually boasting about it. And so, yeah. so that's important to keep in mind when we look at how upset Paul is. Yeah. It, it makes sense. Yeah. And there's this, this injection of Gentiles, pagans into this church. And Paul is very passionate about them abandoning their pagan ways. And what he's seeing is, is the church just adopting those ways. And so he's saying you need to deal with this. Now, when it talks about don't even eat with such a person, first of all, this whole passage is communal in nature, not individual. Okay? So it's talking about how the community is to deal with these issues as a community. Okay? And then it says don't even eat with such a person. It's actually talking about the Lord's Supper. So it's not saying, like, don't go to Boston Pizza with such a person, right? It's, it's saying, remove them from the Lord's Supper. Again, we struggle with this context because to us, the Lord's Supper is a little shot of juice and a wafer and a five-minute burden uh, that extends the service longer than we'd like it to be. Uh, but the, the Lord's Supper then was the centerpiece of how they expressed their faith mm-hmm. as a community. And they were saying, remove this person from that. Mm-hmm. Don't even eat with them, which was an all-day event. It wasn't five minutes in a service. It was an all-day event, and that this person should be removed from that. What that would cause is for that person, he says in verse 5, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, but here's the reason, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So let me read very quickly. Uh, something here, if I can find it. You have to understand how the church thinks at this time. Again, the church doesn't think this way today, or at least in a blanket statement, they don't think this way. Listen to what this commentator says about this passage. Since Jesus defeated the forces of evil through his death and resurrection, Paul believed that those who put their trust in him are protected from the wiles of Satan. (laughs) I love that, the wiles of Satan. Uh, Thus, so he believes that when you're part of the church, the community, always communal language, never individual language. The Bible never talks individually, it always talks communally. So as the church, they see that as the central importance, the body of Christ and its many parts. He says that, that because Jesus defeated the forces of evil through his death and resurrection, Paul believed that those who put their trust in him are protected from Satan. So in community, we're protected. Thus, the worst punishment for, er- for an errant believer is to be removed from the wall of safety provided by the church. Okay? The church body and thrust back into the cold, harsh world that's spiritually naked, completely vulnerable to the evil, rampant aspects of Satan's realm. Mm -hmm. So this person, again, community is, is like high. Nowadays, really low, right? Now it's like friendships and individualism. At this time, community was the highest thing. 
And so being sent away from that community actually opened it up for more temptation and more issues because now you were no longer protected by that community. And so the person would want back into the community ASAP, which Paul says will create a repentive. So if you don't correct, if you just endorse what a person's doing and then like and you let them stay in community it will the yeast he says will go through that community it will cause all kinds of problems i've seen this a million times so paul says you got to deal with it deal with it by removing them but by removing them hopefully they're going to repent and they can come back in mm-hmm. so that's what's happening here again though it's leadership oriented and and so on yeah so paul's got two motives Right, that he identifies in this passage, it's that the man would repent, that he would come back to Christ, and to deal with the reality that it's just it's destroying the community that they're allowing this in. So he wants to protect the, the community of faith, and he wants to give this person a motivation to to come back to faith. Right, and so this is a we're we're dealing with a very specific context with a letter to a very specific church but we these are still very important questions uh, for for churches to navigate yes. right and there is a reality that um if things are going on in in our church family and we've talked about at evergreen our structure for belonging in our community is we have kind of this, this thing called covenant membership which is people who are saying like we really we're all in we want to track together and when you become a member that way there is a reality that like we're, we're kind of holding each other accountable in love, right? We're saying this is who we want to become. We want to become the people that Jesus is calling us to become. And so there are times where hard conversations happen yep. for the sake of each other and for the sake of our community. It just, um, yep. the culture is different. So it looks a little different now, but yep. yeah. So unfortunately, yeah. we have way extended past our time. We're at, already at 45 minutes. So okay. what we're going to have to do is we're probably going to have to do a video podcast to answer the rest okay. of the questions. That'll work. Uh, because there was a question about vulnerability necessary. So good. We have not like forgot about you. We will <laughs> get like, to you. That was going to be our drive home yeah. wrap-up question. I want to give a couple really quick uh, closing thoughts, and then we're going to land with uh, the reason why we actually launched the Infinitum Prayer Challenge in the first place. And it's too bad that we're not dealing with the vulnerability piece because that was why. Stay tuned. It's (laughs) coming. So we will have another conversation that we'll record later. So Jesus calls us to follow him, not not to pray a prayer, although there's nothing wrong with praying the prayer, but the the reaction, the, the embodiment of that prayer has to be the following. Okay? So here's here's a couple things. How do we do this? How do we live this? How do we become the Beatitudes? How do we become, you know, the fruit, live the fruits of the Spirit? All these different things. I think firstly, surrendering to his lordship. Hmm. It's kingdom language. He's the king. We surrender to the king. So when we pray the sinner's prayer, it means we're dying to self and being given new life. And that die to self means we let go of all control. And all control is given to the word who is Jesus in the flesh. Um, And so we surrender to his lordship and we're to give up our life. That culturally is the most difficult piece. Mm -hmm. So thank goodness there's grace because we all err in the giving up self. Uh, That's because we deal with sin. We're human beings. We need to practice our faith in community and in relationship with Jesus. 
And so that's both the intimacy and the communal. And so all of these things must be done in both ways. Mm-hmm. So nothing is just personal and, and nothing is just communal. It's all encompassing together. Okay? So we don't like hide our personal sins. We actually go to the community and seek mentoring and help and, and healing and mm-hmm. so on. It doesn't mean you stand up at the front and you confess. Like it, this can look different in many ways, but we yeah. could talk about that another day. So here's things that we need to be doing. And this is in the context of community. So not just individually, but also communally. Pray. Mm. Oh, if we could just have a church that prayed. Like, honestly, if we had a church that prayed, like, we wouldn't know what to do with all the people. Because a church that prays is a church that's connected to Jesus. A church that doesn't pray is disconnected from Jesus. I don't care what prayer you pray to claim you are connected, if prayer is not a part of the church and not a part of your life, you're disconnected to Jesus in one way or another. Um, We need to read scripture. But we need to read scripture not as a plucker. Please, please. We need to read scripture as the overarching story that we're being invited into. And so when we are plucking verses, which we will naturally do, it's what we've been taught to do in the North American church, we have to do it in the context of the overarching narrative. What is God trying to do here? He came in the flesh. The word became flesh, and he conquered evil, he conquered sin, he conquered death, and he ushered in his kingdom, and he's ushering in his kingdom to come in the new Jerusalem. And so we need to know our fit within that story, and the Bible will tell us that. And so we need to read scripture both communally, together, and we need to learn to interpret scripture together, because if you're just interpreting scripture by yourself, and you claim that just the Holy Spirit told me, my question to you is, how do you know? Let's test the Spirit. And so community does that. Community helps with that. Uh, We need to practice intimacy with Jesus through spiritual formation practices. Tamil's entire role encompasses spiritual formation, and there's a reason that we have a staff position for that. If the church is not being spiritually formed and learning to practice practices that the evangelical churches says, that's dry. Evangelicals, it's dry if you don't mean it. It's rich if you do. And so get away from this, that's dry, and take yourself out of what you think church should be and make church about Jesus. And in a way to do that, we need to begin to practice confession We need to practice silence and listening. We need to practice posture prayers that we actually use our body as we pray. We need to meditate over scripture, both communally and individually. And so we should gather in groups and we should read a passage and we should meditate over that passage together and work with it. And we have to learn the story of God and how we fit into that story. And then the Beatitudes actually just becomes a picture of who you are. Yeah, there's. It's too bad we didn't have time to talk about the vulnerability question because it's really, it's really key in a lot of ways to what Jesus is inviting us into. But it's really just this, this reality that when God becomes really big in our lives, that we become smaller in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. That we're not so concerned about putting forward, 
you know, a certain image of ourselves or holding on to power or status or anything like that, because God and his mission and his calling are so big in our lives. And really that's, that's what the Beatitudes is inviting us into to make God big as we follow Jesus. So I'm a little bit worried about the streaming ending. Okay. Because it's 1115. I don't know when uh, it's set up to do that. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> we're going to make a video about vulnerability. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about some of the other passages. I have a bunch of passages listed here about vulnerability. So yeah. I'm really excited about that part. We'll do that for you this week and post it online. Maybe next week. It'll be soon. Um, need to be comfortable in your identity in Christ, accept your weaknesses, rest in those weaknesses, show compassion in all circumstances, all of that kind of stuff. We implemented the infinitum prayer because it does all of that for us in three minutes. There's a reason why we give you things because we know that prayer is a difficult thing for some. And so we give you ways because we know you want a system, you're a human being. And we give you ways in order to practice vulnerability, listening, surrendering, and so on. So I asked Pastor Tamil if she could end the service today, walking us through that posture prayer. But keep in mind these concepts uh, that, that we're working through. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, let's, let's pray this together. And I just want to encourage you um, to really mean it, right? The difference between a prayer that's written being dry and a prayer that's written... Uh, shaping us and forming us and speaking into our lives is whether or not we engage our hearts in it. And so let's pray this together, really paying attention to what we're, we're saying and uh, with an openness to allow God to move our lives in these rhythms. So let's pray. We're going to lift our hands up above our head. I've only got one available, but you have two. We're going to pray, I choose to hold my hand up as a symbol of surrender. My life is not about me. I surrender to your lordship. I surrender my preferences, prejudices, and position to you. I surrender my fears, my finances, my friends, and my family to you. Then we open up our hands in front of us in a posture of generosity, and we pray, I choose to hold my hands out as a symbol of generosity. What I have is not mine. I'm only a steward of all that you've given me. I want to mirror the way that you opened your hand to us and lavished your love and life upon us. I want to live open-handed life in a closed-fist culture. Then we hold our hands forward in a posture of mission, and we pray, I choose to hold my hands forward as a symbol of mission. I want to live for something greater than me. I want to embrace your kingdom mission. I want to embrace and welcome your mission to the lost, the last, the least, and the lonely, to the poor, the powerless, the privileged, and the persecuted. So God, we pray that you would let our community be a church that embodies these postures in our day-to-day lives as we seek to follow the ways of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So look for the video this week where we're going to deal with vulnerability. We're sorry we didn't get to it. 
And may the Lord bless you today as you enjoy the snow. Thank you.